Hello, and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, science, people, creativity, learning more, expanding our framework, subscribe, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it might be, support the show as it continues to blossom. We are near up to the 400th episode at some point. On this one here, we have a wonderful, delightful guest that I've known of for nearly a decade and a half from a distance and sometimes connection through a long time ago to now, Srini Vasarao. Srini, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very glad to have you on. You are the creator of The Unmistakable Creative. You have written multiple books, an audience of one, a recent one on artificial intelligence usage for creativity. How would you describe the category that speaks to you right now that you are trying to describe or showcase to people? Well, I guess, you know, if you think what we're going to talk about today is sort of the role of AI and creativity. And, you know, for somebody like me who had such a massive body of work, AI just basically opened up the floodgates to a sort of opportunity that I hadn't had before or opportunity to do things that would have required a tremendous amount of resources. So if we look at it from a sort of foundational economic level, uh, one of the things uh, that Adam Smith said in The Wealth of Nations is that division of labor maximizes output. And of course, that led to, you know, the idea of the assembly line. Henry Ford was able to match manufacture cars at scale because he divided labor. Everybody was only doing one job. They were all doing what they did best. And as a result, uh, Henry Ford and became wildly successful. And the thing is, we've known that for a long time. This is why it takes 100 you know, employees to get Google off the ground. This is why it takes thousands of employees to keep Facebook running, whatever it is. Like, that's no secret to anybody. But the thing is that labor has always been prohibitively expensive. And a lot of the things that division of labor makes possible were only accessible to people with deep pockets and a lot of resources. And what AI is really is the ultimate equalizer, because what it does is it makes division of labor at scale available to the masses. And that's at a foundational economic level. Like, you know, I just want to put that out there so we have a baseline for where we're starting. So how does that, you know, apply to me? Well, the thing that intrigued me most is that I knew that inside of every unmistakable creative interview, there were probably 50 to 60 other pieces of content that could be created from it. Um, and the problem with doing that is that it's time consuming. It's incredibly time consuming to try to repurpose and repackage content. And so when I saw what AI could do, I realized that the opportunity I'd been waiting for forever was the ability to be able to repurpose and repackage content at scale. And that is incredibly valuable when you have a ton of you know, content like I do, like, because if you think about it, data, AI depends on a combination of two things, really, uh, data and human input, right? So why is ChatGPT so good? Because it's been trained on millions and millions of pieces of data. Uh, it's got so much information in there that most people don't have access to such large volumes of data. Uh, and the thing is, up until now, people who've had access to data are these huge companies. Like the reason Facebook advertising is so targeted and, you know, you and I have a conversation about a brand of shoes and we'll both see ads for it on Instagram later is because they have access to all our data. But the thing is that we've never had access to our own personal information in a way that we could use AI to, you know, maximize the utility of that information. And that is really what's changing now. And so when you were in a situation like I am, where you have tons of information in different formats. So just to take as an example, podcasts, where if you take a thousand podcast transcripts and you put them into a database and use AI to like manipulate them, the combinations of what you can do are virtually endless. Uh, 
I had a podcast guest once who said, you know, like when we're like, because I asked, she was a neuroscientist and I said, you know, I've always wondered what has happened to my brain as a result of having done all these interviews. Like I wondered if you did a, you know, sort of scan of my brain, how would it look different uh, after a thousand interviews versus how it looked, you know, when I started The Unmistakable Creative. And she said something to me that always stayed with me. She said, you know, when we can upload our consciousness to the internet, yours is the kind of brain we're going to all want to have access to, um, which was very flattering. It's not, you know, particularly because I'm, you know, some genius. It's because of the information I have acquired from so many different people. And of course, I couldn't access that information, uh, you know, without a lot of effort. And so, I think that that really was to me, you know, the opportunity here was, wow, what does this make possible? And the things that it makes possible are endless. I mean, it's also the other thing you get is not just the ability to produce at scale, but at the speed of thought once you have everything structured the right way. And so I think that that's the big thing that people don't understand. So in my mind, the the sort of misguided argument is that, oh, this is you know going to replace human creativity. And I don't think that's true. I think that for people who are bad at what they do, yes, it will replace human creativity. But for people who are good at what they do, it's going to enable them to do what they do better. So you know, one thing I had said was AI, I don't even know if I wrote this in the book, but I was like, AI isn't going to make idiots into geniuses, but it will make smart people a hell of a lot smarter. So, you know, just as an example, um, so, you know, I, I've, been, I've been using AI primarily for revision when it comes to writing. And you got to remember, I have like so many mental models and so much, you know, knowledge to work with based on having read so many books and interviewed so many people. And so I thought to myself, okay, well, there's one book that always stayed with me. And I always wondered, how do you apply these principles to a blog post? It was um, uh, Contagious by Jonah Berger, who's a social scientist. And Contagious is all about what makes things go viral. And there's sort of eight sort of principles of contagion. I don't remember what they are. And so I went into ChatGPT and I said, hey, take the eight principles of contagion and revise my blog post based on these principles. You know, but the thing is that I that would not have been possible if one, I hadn't read that book and two, I hadn't interviewed Jonah Berger. Like I had that knowledge. So your your actual pursuit of knowledge matters a lot still. And, you know, it doesn't change the fact that you still have to learn, you still have to acquire knowledge, because the thing is that when you do, when you're able to combine your existing knowledge and the ongoing knowledge that you cultivate with AI, that's when you get like superpowers um, to do things that just you know, like, again, the, the only reason I could think of that idea is because I had that framework to work with, like because I had read that book and I could do that with hundreds of books now, which is really, you know, fascinating to see what you like the combinations of things that might arise from that. So now, and you know, once I figured it out, I had ChatGPT actually write the prompt for me. I said, okay, give me a prompt so I can use this every time I want you to revise a blog post. This is a wonderful thing where you're getting it to get itself going in some form to assist you as long as you give it some direction. The main thing is the direction and the bigger vision yeah. of where you want to take it. Totally. That's a neat one. Now, one thing is when you use it, do you, is it not helpful that you've already been organized in a large way? I've noticed you have systems across the board that help everything be well managed over the years. Is that yeah. the reason that you're able to make such good use of the systems? In the yeah, process? I mean, look, that matters a lot, right? If you're a person who's disorganized, it, it, it shows up in your work, right? So like right now I'm, I'm you know, doing a series on our YouTube channel about workflow optimization. And uh, yeah, I mean, that matters a whole hell of a lot. So let me just break down the concept of workflow for you. Like, so if you think about it, every task that you complete has what is called a workflow. Um, and within that workflow, there's sort of one underlying step that produces the overwhelming 
overwhelming majority or disproportionate amount of value. So take something like writing and publishing a blog post. There's one activity that produces the disproportionate value, and that's the actual writing. The thing is that there's all these ancillary activities that surround it, right? Like going and putting it up on, you know, whatever your CMS is, going and editing it, going and adding links, adding images, just all the things that we do in order to get a blog post ready for publication. So all those steps are part of your workflow. And so, you know, Cal Newport makes this distinction as book between workflow and work execution. And writing is really the work execution step. The problem is when you're disorganized, you will spend a lot of time managing the workflow, which takes away from the time you spend on work execution. And that's one of the big reasons it's so vitally important to build sort of a system. But first, you have to understand, you know, what is a workflow? So what is workflow for each task? Like I said, every task you complete has a workflow. And within that workflow, there's sort of four pillars of what I call workflow design pillars. One is you know, the people that are involved in completing it. The second is the process, which are the steps involved to complete it. The third is the tools, like what pieces of software do you use? So for example, in this case, you know, for you to record a podcast, because hey, Riverside FM is the tool that I use to record an interview. Um, and then there is the information. So that would be the, the raw data. So for example, in this case, it would be the raw audio file. Where does it live? It might be on Riverside servers. It might be in Dropbox, depending on how you run your workflow. But what most people will find when they go through this process, and they do this for every single task, is that they're workflow is wildly inefficient and that they are having to go to multiple places to complete multiple tasks and use multiple tools. And it's a bit like going to a different grocery store to buy every item on the list when you want to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's the height of stupidity. And so the thing is that if you think about the way that we've tried to solve this problem in the past, you know, say 10 to 15 years, what have we done? We've built distraction blocking tools. We've built task management apps. We've built CRMs, we've built all this stuff. And the thing is that what all these things do is they address the the um, the symptom, but they don't address the root cause. And the root cause, if you look at pretty much all knowledge work of all our issues around our ability to be productive as knowledge workers, comes down to one thing, and it's how we organize and access information. So if you have information in 20 different places and you need 20 different tools to complete you know one task, inevitably that's going to slow down your ability to complete that task. Now. I'm not saying that you can get rid of every single tool you have, but you have to aggregate the flow of information. And to take us back to that whole workflow idea, like why is that so important? Because if you don't know what that workflow is, then there's no way that you can automate it. And there's no way that you can use AI because you're basically just feeding it gibberish. So as an example, uh, one of my good friends built out our uh, editorial calendar for Unmistakable Creative on Airtable. The whole thing is automated from, you know, booking guests to letting them know their interviews are live to producing the social content. All that is done with like, you know, probably three clicks. They used to take like an hour a week and now it takes 30 seconds, right? So what you're seeing is like these kinds of simple things. But the thing, the thing that he had me do when we first met was he made me walk through every step. He's like, you got to explain this to me like I'm the dumbest person, you know, literally step by step. Because a lot of the automation tools, a lot of, you know, particularly th tools like Zapier and all that right they work on an if then logic and so you have to kind of think okay well if you don't know what the if is then how can you tell it to do you know what then is like so you have to have very sort of de clearly delineated steps before you can actually streamline the workflow because Otherwise, you're just kind of guessing and you don't want to overcomplicate something that's already unnecessarily complicated because that's just going to make things worse. And that's not the idea here. Um, so 
that's one component of it. Then, of course, you, know, you layer on top of that Tiago Forte's entire concept of building a second brain. Why does that matter? Because if you don't have the ability to access and use your knowledge or put it to use in a way that is, is you know, one, it's easily retrievable. Um, it can be you know, synthesized. It can be mixed up in different ways. Then you're effectively just spending your time managing information. So a good example is something like folders, right? People often will create like these very complex organizational systems of folders. And I've seen this on people's hard drives and you look at it, it's like, you know, folder, subfolder, subfolder file, and they can never find anything. And, you know, and it's a terrible way to organize information for one. And you have to remember where to put things all the time. So a lot of people, what they do is they will take notes, you know, on a book they read or they'll copy a bunch of quotes, they'll save it to like Evernote, and that'll be the end of it. That's where knowledge management ends for most people. And of course, that very rarely leads to anything useful. And I've only learned this over the past couple of years because I've had access to so much information and so many book notes. Um, whereas if you look at people like Ryan Holiday um, and Tiago and, and all these people, like one of the things that Ryan Holiday does that he's very diligent about is that he takes notes on every book he reads, but he writes them down on physical note cards and he just writes the thoughts that occurred. Like most of us are just copying and pasting information, moving it from one place to another. And we call that taking notes, but that's not really taking notes. Um, and so you combine all these things together uh, and then you start to have what is effectively a system that, you know, leads to creative output. And so, yeah, I mean, the fact that I have organized information the way that I have has definitely been <laughs> instrumental to what I've been able to do with AI. It's just because I have access to everything very easily. Such important points here. I like the specific nature, like I understand as, uh, as a podcast maker and anybody who is trying to put their information out there has to go through the, or would highly benefit from going through the process. Let's say you have a workflow in one category what might be a first couple of steps would you uh, look at? Well, okay, so let, let's, let's just take the podcast as the example, right? Yeah, no, you absolutely. So like, what about, you know, so if you were to say, okay, how do you schedule an interview? Um, and so basically, for example, you want to interview me. So what's the yes. first thing that you do? You send me an email, right? Yes. And then, you know, and I remember I asked you, do you have a Calendly link? And you said you hadn't set this up. Hence the reason. And if you think about that, what does that lead to? Four unnecessary emails that could have been, you know, been eliminated if you had, you know, a link. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on you here. I'm just giving you an example uh, of like one major inefficiency. So then what happens? You have to basically send me, in addition to, you know, agreeing on time. Once we agree on a time, what do you do? You set you um, you create the calendar link. Then you also have to send me the Riverside FM link, um, and you know whatever order you do those in, you know, it's fine. But you need to know what that order is, and what you'll inevitably find is is you know the inefficiency. So like after we're done recording, I don't know what your pr production process is, but for me, I get done recording. When I get done recording, I mark the episode as recorded in our editorial calendar in Airtable. That way my audio engineer knows. I upload a headshot of the person and that way our designer knows. And then once a week, she gets a design request saying, okay, take care of all the latest podcast episode covers. And to be honest, my audio engineers in South Africa, I can go six weeks without talking to them and will the show runs like clockwork. And I almost, and if anything doesn't run like clockwork, it's 90% of the time my fault because I didn't put something where it was supposed to be. So you notice that, that what you're seeing here is people process and tools again, right? It, like, so in my own workflow, what do I do? I use, um, 
you know, I basically have somebody book an interview with using Calendly. That goes into our editorial calendar in Airtable. I create a Riverside link and they receive that through an automated email that automatically gets generated using Zapier. And then we conduct the interview. I then mark the interview as recorded. And now comes the next group of people in the process, which is my audio engineer and designer. So now I don't know what tools he uses, but he basically goes in. So the designer goes, she creates an album cover. She uploads it to Airtable. Then it gets passed off to our audio engineer. And the thing that you'll you'll notice here is the limit, the, just the limits in terms of back and forth communication. There's almost none, you know, versus you and I, in order to schedule an interview, had to send, have an exchange of three or four emails. Um, whereas I can produce, you know, 12 episodes a month without emailing a single person or even having a conversation with them. And so you see the difference, like in that, that one step alone is like, you know, a massive bottleneck. Now imagine if I had to do all, all of that using emails and Slack messages. Right. Yeah. The heft of that would be. Well, it's, it's what Cal Newport calls a hyperactive hive mind. So you're just having these ongoing unstructured communications and people are using tools like email, Slack messages, whatever. Like I have, I have a group of people, a vendor that I work with who uses email to manage the projects and I find it absurd. Like it's really annoying, um, but I can't get them to change. So you know, and that's the thing, like once people become aware of this, the funny thing is it frees up so much time. The, the scary thing is that, you know, probably part of the reason people don't want to go to a more efficient workflow is it'll make them people aware of the fact that they actually don't do a damn thing all day. That's a solid point right there. That's true. But if you do have that headspace where you want to bring more time and energy into the main part that you want to be doing, this is wonderful because now you're towards that versus the other part yeah just ancillary totally it's a it's a large deal i like the specific nature of it and is there any benefit this is like separate but is there any benefit to looking up a category of what you do as part of the workflow and check on youtube like how somebody does that well, part or not really yeah i mean look it, there's no point in reinventing the wheel for something somebody else has done a thousand times if you know and can do it faster and better um, but each person is going to have their process, right? Like some people don't like Riverside FM, so you got to adapt. You know, it's like, that's the thing. I, th I think that you have to adapt based on sort of how you work and understand sort of what works best for you. Like part of the reason I took to, to mem.ai was because it was a self-organizing workspace. I'm like, you're telling me I never have to, I can save everything. I can find every anything in seconds. I'm like, this is a game changer for somebody with ADHD. Like, I don't want to go looking around because for me, multitasking is really detrimental like far so far much more than probably the average person because when you have adhd if you get derailed your day gets shot to hell on the point of m.ai mm -hmm. is that where you organize all your thoughts because i've noticed you have a great system where you don't just put things there like on evernote and they're just there and then five months later they were just there you don't do that how do you use no no so i yeah. So, you know, I, I learned about this from uh, the book, How to Take Smart Notes by Sanka Ahrens. I, I have no idea how I came across uh, the lecture on it. I, I remember just stumbling on it and thinking, okay, this is pretty brilliant. Um, 
and then you know I take Nat, I took Nat Eliasson's course on Rome, and I just didn't like Rome. Like conceptually, I loved what it was capable of, but I just found it very difficult to use. And so Mem came along, and I thought, okay, well, let me take everything I learned from Nat's course and see if I can apply it to Mem. And when I did, it was a game changer. I was like, okay. And so if you so let, let's go back to this idea of how we organize information because that's kind of like the the foundational piece. So typically, when you think about how people organize information, what they do is they use hierarchical structures like folders, right? And the problem with a hierarchy, uh, like a set of folders, you know, is that there's a sort of top-down position. Even if you use the Tiago Forte para method, right, the idea of a second brain, and you re replicate that structure across every single tool you use, the biggest issue is you still have to maintain and organize the structure. So you have to remember to put things in your projects folder, to put things in your resources folder. And the thing is, at a certain point, that no longer scales because let's say you have thousands of book notes, thousands of transcripts, no matter how good your folder system is, it's eventually going to fall apart. Uh, and so the way that I do this based on this concept of how to take smart notes, which this also makes your notes a thousand times more valuable because they become notes that you can use, right? They become real assets, not just a bunch of collection of quotes. Um, you know, in fact, you know, one of the first emails that goes out, you know, our autoresponder is that collecting quotes leads to useless notes, which it does. And I know this having written two books, like, you know, if I had had what I have now at my disposal, my other books would have been so much easier to write than they have been, than they were. Um, and so the, the thing is that the concept of smart notes really is that, you know, you're reading books There's a lot of us underline, highlight, whatever, right? The problem is we don't really retain any of that. Even if you like, you know, use Readwise or whatever it is, capture it, save it in Evernote, for most people, that's where it ends. They never go look at that note again, to your point, like five months later, like, oh, there's a note about, you know, all this. So the idea behind smart notes is really that each note, each like thing you underline becomes a note in and of itself, okay, where you basically rewrite it in your own words um, to basically, you know, get an understanding. But while you're rewriting it in your own words, you're naturally going to have ideas based on whatever you have just read. So there are sort of three types of notes. There's a fleeting note, which is you just write down a thought while you're reading. That's just to help you remember the idea. Then you go into what they call a literature note, which is, okay, I'm going to take that idea and I'm going to write a concise explanation of it based on my own words. I'm going to basically put what page was this on. And then underneath it, after I've written it in my own words, I'm going to add the quote. And then I'm going to link it to another note, which you call your reference note, which is actually the collection of quotes that most people have. So most people literally just have references. They don't have notes. In fact, like if, if we're, you know, what people call notes are usually just references, which is a bunch of quotes. So what ends up happening is you have all these little tiny notes. Now, of course, if you were trying to do that in a series of folders, it would be a shit show to organize. The nice thing about MEM or any of these other tools is that information is organized in a network. So in a network, you have sort of a center and then every single note is a node within that network. And so if you think about things like fax machines, Facebook, you know, social media, right? Social media isn't useful until there's somebody else on the platform. So if Twitter only had two users, then nobody would use it because it's not very useful. The value of the network increases exponentially as more and more people join the network. It's basically what they call network effects. And what network knowledge management does is it takes network effects and it applies it to your knowledge. So as you capture more and more knowledge, the value of your own knowledge increases exponentially as well as the usability. And not only that, because it's in a network-based system, you can connect any piece of information to another piece of information using the concept called bi-directional links, like just the same way you would add a hyperlink, but it's a hyperlink to something within your own knowledge base. And you literally can just type and link it. And if you think about that, like think about, it takes us back to the beginning. So like how much time do we spend looking for information? Now imagine being able to retrieve 
every piece of information you need. So for example, if you wanted to write a blog post and you have 80 notes about decision-making, imagine being able to just have all of them right there in the outline. And because all of them are already written in your own words, the great thing about that is you actually end up spending a lot more time editing because you just start to put things together. So like each one is like a puzzle piece and then you basically put it together. But here's the better part of all of this. Normally in a sort of hierarchical system, when you take a puzzle piece out and you build a puzzle and you take all those puzzle pieces out, then you have to put new puzzle pieces in. In a network-based system, those pieces are reusable. You can use them over and over again for different pieces that is a game that's another one of those game changer things so um and and a lot of this is hard to understand when you're thinking like hearing about it it's one of those things you really have to see in action and then you have to to experience because you know, go back to network effects so a lot of people when they they start playing with this guy with friends come to me though i kind of get what's so magical about this and i realize they don't have any information in there so like you need a critical mass of knowledge before you can get to this right so if you don't because if the whole idea is that we want to make connections between ideas if you have no ideas in there, how are you going to make connections between your ideas? That's impossible. Right. And so, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, that's my giant rant on, you know, organization information. But, I mean, and then your ability to use AI becomes a lot more powerful. Because if you think about it, right, like why is, you know, why are all these huge companies able to do this? Because they have all this data organized in ways that it's accessible and modifiable. Like they can do things with it, you know, whereas the average person doesn't have their information organized that way. So they, it's very hard, difficult to maximize the utility of your personal information when it's completely disjointed. Right. You're making me think of, well, two things. One, so I use Notion. I write a lot of notes in there, but they're not... Mm -hmm linked like this so i see the value of this so in the the concept you're yeah i mean i used notion for a long time i was a, a, a hardcore notion user for a very long time and i'm not anymore right if exactly. i had written 15 different things about a certain topic across months and months and months they would be linked and so if i was now writing new material on that topic boom those 15 items are ready to go so the 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 entire artificially intelligent creative book was literally just a collection of a lot of notes that i'd taken over you know like the past two or three years and everything i'd read about ai and i, I basically just one day was like okay let me i used mems AI and i was like write a synopsis for this book and i was like interesting when i said write a table of contents the table of contents was literally all my notes and i was like okay i know i can write this so i wrote probably 80 percent of the book in 10 days and then i spent the next six weeks revising this is a wonderful thing. You are ahead of the item. You're already there. And then that last part is just the last part. That's not actually the the main part. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, is the work that you do beforehand, right? Like this is where the whole sort of blank page idea actually falls apart because like you're not starting with a blank page. You're doing a lot of the research in advance. So you end up, um, it's just a much more efficient way to work. It, it's, you know, it. the thing is that, if you, the what I, I realized is that we've spent our entire life basically using uh, organiz, linear organizational systems for nonlinear processes, and so the idea of breaking something down like that is really overwhelming. So it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance when your process is not linear. Suddenly you're like, wait, I can just go in the order that I'm thinking. But if you think about the way that information is organized in your brain. Your brain is a network, not a hierarchy, right? You don't say, oh, let me open the folder for this. Like, you, you know, if I say one word, you can literally recall everything that's associated with that word in an instant. Now, imagine being able to do that with your knowledge. Highly impactful and very valuable. And 
I've always thought that nonlinear individuals need to build systems like this or higher levels of management because things are built linear. So that's set up for linear individuals already. But nonlinear has to... But the truth is nobody nobody thinks linearly. There's literally nobody, you know, like as much as we want to kid ourselves, like, you know, you think about... That's the other thing is that it allows you to just go in the like order in which ideas come to you and you're able to capture ideas, you know, as they occur to you and then develop them when you're ready. You know, so like in the middle of any blog post, you might have one or two phrases that could be another blog post in and of itself. And then you have to stop and then write it down. So like Notion, what would you do? You'd have to say, okay, I'm going to do this now. I, have to, I mean, you, I think they have the linking capability now in Notion, but I haven't used it for so long that I don't know. But you'd have to stop and say, okay, let me, you know, like create a new note. And then you have to remember where that note is. But here's the other thing that's great about that, right, is that you also can retrace the thought process that led to that idea. So, for example, let's say that you didn't link it to the note that sparked the idea. Then you went to it. You'd be like, well, I don't remember. I wrote this down now. I don't, you know, everybody's had that experience. You write something down, you have no idea what the hell it was about. Um, Whereas in Mem, if I have a note that's empty, you know, and I have tons of notes that are empty with just a title. But I can look back and see, okay, why did I, what note was this linked from? And then I'll know, okay, I can retrace my thought process to what sparked the idea, which that's another hugely valuable thing. When you have notes that have a title, but nothing in them, how does that that occur? Well, okay. So this is another one of those things that creates cognitive dissonance, right? So like when you create folders, like you never create a folder that you have no files in, like, or that you don't intend to have a file in. Whereas in a network-based system, as long as you give a note a title, it doesn't matter. And so sometimes it's like, hey, this is an idea for a blog post and I haven't done anything with it. It's, but the thing is that you want to be able to retrace the thought process or one note leads to an idea for another note. So what you're doing basically is just linking different notes. They all connect together, um, but you can go back and develop them when they're ready. So like sometimes you'll have an idea, but you're not ready to do anything about it. And you can do this without disrupting your workflow. So for example, if I'm writing a blog post and an idea occurs to me for another blog post that's like a snippet of this one, I can just capture the idea and keep working on this one without disrupting the workflow. That's the real value. You know, it's spontaneous insight without immediate action. So in a lot of ways, what you're doing is you're taking a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down approach. I always find that to be way better. The top-down, you get all these uh, friction layers and you have to come up with... uh... Well, it's it's just at. well, and you don't have the the way the brain works. It just doesn't work that very well. Our brains don't work that way. Right, bottom up. I always think about it like coming from underneath. It's always I'm always inspired by that, but the other way around, not inspiring. It seems like a lot of uh, effort is lost. I've noticed when I do that. Yeah, interesting. Yes, so from the bottom, and you're keeping all that you work with already there. It's like uh, it's still able to be played with. Versus mm-hmm. the other approach, it's like employment from from the first second. The play is gone immediately. Yeah. yeah. Now, highly valuable, I have to say, as a creator. Now, in the category of artificial, let's say today, where we are at with AI tools, what's one item other than the um, example given that someone, let's say they have a body of work, that might mm-hmm. be useful for them to take that body of work and now uh, it through using AI, it helps get something going in a direction 
what comes to mind. Well, you know, let's, I'll give you two examples. So even, you know, with the artificially intelligent creative, when I saw the the table of contents initially, I, I, you know, I was like, okay, I like everything that's in here. These are all based on my notes, but I was really trying to force this notion of like, I want this book to be organized using the acronym idea, you know, in each section, like, you know, with each one standing for something. And I was just like, Okay, I can either sit here trying to force fit this, or I can do something smarter. So I dumped the acronym, the entire table of contents into ChatGPT, and I said, reorganize this table of contents with the acronym idea. Give each section a title, with each one you know representing, and that's how that idea acronym came about. And you know, it took a few iterations to get it right, but the fact is, like, because it could run millions of combos, whereas for me, you know, that would have taken forever. Um, so that's one example, but like, let's say you say take so like an average blogger, right? Let's say the blogger wants to say, you know, they've got all these different blog posts and they're like, okay, I need to create an ebook or a lead magnet for my email subscribers so that people subscribe to my newsletter. What you could do is you could say, okay, here's five or six different blog posts, you know, combine them together. You, know, you could literally just go through and say, okay, extract like a key insight. And, you know, so we do this every year when we basically take, you know, the best ideas that we've learned from podcast guests in one year. So now what I can do is I can go to a podcast transcript and say, okay, you know, write a, you know, list of, you know, key takeaways from this interview and bullet points. Then I could be like, all right, great. Take this one bullet point, expand on it using the content in the transcript below and exact quotes from the guest. That becomes lesson number one. And so if I have, you know, 30 guests, I can do that in less than an hour. That used to take more than a month. Um, so basically, in a lot of ways, you know, for content creators in particular, I think the real value is in the ability to repurpose, um, in my opinion. You know, I, I think, of course, like you can also improve your content significantly because, yeah, there's certain things like I'm terrible at. Like I used to make, you know, I make tons of mistakes. I have typos and all that stuff. Like now I don't have to worry about that because, it, you know, I can have AI basically do 98% of the revisions for me and make it crisp or, you know, make something flow. It's like, I know what I want to say. So like my rule of thumb is write it yourself first, write, you know, humans write, AIs revise. It's us first and then the tools afterwards taking care of so much at this point. Yeah. Right. We don't, we shouldn't have too many points of friction and Absolutely. have it give you information back right away to, mm -hmm. okay, what, what, what's a better way to do this? Uh, rewrite this in this form. How does one come up with, is that even a prompt idea? Like to prompt to have the chat item tell you different ways that it could be useful or is that yeah i mean okay so here's here's the the thing that you know a lot of people don't seem to realize you can type whatever the hell you want into the prompt box you know and if it, but here's but this is other critically important point is that if you type gibberish into the prompt box that's what you're going to get back you know it's a simple computer science rule garbage in garbage out so like so the example i can you know i came back to and i gave this you know as an example in the book and i this was based on a conversation i had with a friend like you know you're still 50 percent of the equation here man like your communication so let's say you had a, a, a human employee and you wanted them to complete a task task and you did a shitty job explaining how to complete the task and then they did a shitty job on the task whose job whose fault is it that they did a lousy job Yours or theirs, it's absolutely your fault because you did a shitty job explaining it. And so that's the same idea with AI, you know? And so the thing is that you kind of have to learn how to talk to AI. And so like my sort of thing that I think has been very helpful for me is when I 
either don't get the result that I want or it takes multiple iterations to get the result that I want, I'll actually ask the AI, I'm like, okay, this took too many iterations. Tell me how I could rephrase my initial prompt that I first gave you to give me this output on the first attempt. And then I just save that. And so I have an ongoing prompt library. Like everybody should be creating a personal prompt library for the things they do regularly. One, because you don't have to type a stupid prompt over and over again. Um, and most of us are using the same ones over and over again, whether we realize it or not, you know, like we're, we're using variations of the same thing over and over again. How much of, when you think of automation, what are some of the examples that come to mind first? Is it like certain apps and services or is it? Well, I mean, Zapier is a big one, right? So like automation is always going to be integrated into your tools. Like you think about automation as a connector that connects different tools together. You know, it doesn't eliminate them, you know? So like, um, I'm trying to think of a, a like metaphor in the physical world that would kind of like make sense. Um, well, I mean, okay, as stupid as it sounds, you can think of Zapier as the equivalent of the post office, right? It just sends information from one place to another so that information, you know, each person can do what they need to do with the information. Right. It's like a transfer protocol. Yeah. TCP IP. That's cool. Yeah. Now, does it, does it become readily obvious when you are have things in a very good order that matches our mind that the ability of your creation is now 5x 10x 15x what it would have been before is that very like yeah plainly yeah it, well it's not immediately obvious for people because they their information is either disorganized or they don't have you know a lot to work with um you know so like i i remember even in our, in our course like you know somebody was taking notes and i told her i was like look this is great but you've like this note is kind of gibberish because like if you go back to it it doesn't really tell you much you're like okay you know i like you might know it's a note from this book about this concept but one you're not gonna be able to you I, I told her like, you need to write the note like tiago for like write the note to your future self you want to think about when you write this note how am i going to make it write it in such a way that i'll be able to use it in the future so every one of my notes gets a title and a you know like and then whatever the content of that note is the title being the most important thing because if i have a clear and concise title then i can use the title of that note to complete a sentence in another note you know, I can embed it into a sentence. And that's when you start to really see sort of this snowball effect. You're not letting them go. Now, do you ever do any sort of like daily writing that's based on the date or would that not be something you would do? Well, yeah, I mean, so the thing is, this changed my, my sort of, you know, thousand word a day thing quite a bit. So like I write six to seven notes every day, right? The date kind of doesn't matter anymore. Um, you know, because what you'll do is you'll write, you'll just keep, you know, collecting these notes that are written in your own words and eventually an idea emerges, right? And the ideas start to emerge very organically. So like, you know, I, through going through this process, just to give you an example, like over the last couple of days, suddenly it occurred to me that, you know, being a prompt, because I'd kept reading this article, these articles about, you know, companies hiring prompt engineers, whose job is to basically craft AI prompts. And I was like, you know what, like prompt engineer is going to literally be part of everybody's job description. Like that's already part of everybody's job description. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to write a blog post title, why a prompt engineer will no longer, you know, is going to be, you know, part of everybody's job description. And so bit by bit, and it was, you know, using notes, and it was, because what you start to do is you notice patterns, right? Like you inevitably start to make connections and patterns, you do this unconsciously, anyways but the problem is you don't externalize that and if you don't externalize it then you can't do anything with it that's a very important point how much yeah. that's a great point yeah you have to, it has to be out there 
how much of your when you make something now is it was already coming out it was already done beforehand do you ever do things right now where you are still putting like executive function into 85% of it or is that very uncommon now well i mean it really depends man um you know some stuff are you know is like a work in progress other things are you know existing notes because the the thing that happens is you know you're you're creating the pieces of the puzzle and you're putting them back together later so a lot of the things that you know like for example probably content that you okay. saw in the book your video is gone just let me know yeah i had to turn it off for just a second oh, okay um so i mean a lot of the things were were you know things that i you know like just emerged over a year year and a half like i had no intention of writing a book this year particularly not one about ai like that wasn't part of my plan that's the thing that's magical is you know you have these ideas that emerge organically and you're able to execute them very fast because you have so much of the legwork done right that's ready to go it's almost a sign that if you're putting so much into the item at the time yeah well the more you put into the system the more it's gonna you know you're gonna get out of it it compounds it's like the comp basically think about it as compound interest like on knowledge management this one I always think about. I, that, that one very much speaks to my mind because there's something great about uh, knowledge work with uh, the material you have from before. If you have some notes on this and this, this can be a this. Notes on this and this, this can be a this. These two can be a this. It's a nice effect there. Do you have any group of individuals that you regularly communicate about on uh, systems? Is there like a... Yeah, I mean, I have a YouTube channel... No, no, I have a YouTube channel where I publish tutorials every week, um, you know, called Maximize Your Output. And it's all just tutorials about MEM and, you know, other stuff related to AI. Right. And then is there any, like, is it a good idea to have, does it matter to have a group of individuals that have a similar... No, I mean, not really. I mean, it's up to you, right? Like, that, that's not one of those things that I personally think is, you know, like necessary i mean ultimately you need to do the work like i think that can often be a crutch like it just becomes an excuse to avoid work the amount of great points that are hitting here is very valuable i can tell when something is directly towards the framework that i know of versus like uh, knowledge expanding in a different category so that's a nice feature um what are some items this is more of a broad item but what are some items that have come out from your consistent podcast production that you did not see beforehand or have been interesting in recent time has anything come out that uh, sticks out as oh that happened from that well i mean if we're talking you know about ai in particular so like this month you know we're doing a series on mental health awareness month and we're publishing blog posts every day based on each episode and i never wrote blog posts based on each episode but now it's like you know because those blog posts are mainly for seo purposes i don't consider those my art so you know it's like take this you know transcript and turn it into a blog post about the key concepts in the transcript and with the main purpose being to get people to listen to the episode not read the blog post so um stuff like that you know has come about uh and you know like i said to do that in the past would have been you know a month of just planning you know it took like a day and a half of planning and you know, you know and we're off to the races is there a thing connected with when you are using ai for uh content production that does it feel like sometimes 
where is the me in it or can you clearly feel the me in it across the path well it's different yeah. it, again it depends on the type of content you're talking about so for example when i'm doing things like turning my youtube videos into you know the transcripts of my youtube videos into blog posts no i don't care about that because those blog posts are purely for seo purposes i don't really give a damn that i don't consider those my art like blog posts that I write specifically because I want to write, you know, for example, I wrote this, you know, things on you know, this post on Medium titled Seven Lessons I Learned from My Seven-Month-Old Nephew. That I wrote entirely, you know, that wasn't like an AI-generated, you know, thing. So there's a difference. It, it kind of, you know, it's where you're, you're going to have to choose where you're going to apply it. I like that. I like that you separated the two, right? You can still put it where you want to be and you reduce friction where you uh, have things that are maybe for SEO or it's that kind of item. Has the has your material taken you to locations that you would not have gone to otherwise, or connected with you mean physically? Yes, physically or with certain individuals. Yes. No, I mean, like, no, I mean that hasn't. I mean, I you know, I, I don't actually. You come to think of it, I, like I've been using ChatGPT to find places to go, like in Brazil, and you know, do like interesting things. So. It can and can't. I mean, I, I wouldn't say necessarily, like, I, you know, in terms of locations or people. No, not really. I mean, because I'm always a naturally curious person. Like, you know, I think that the thing that you have to be careful is that this doesn't just become a substitute for, like, you know, real human interaction. Right. It's like a gateway to other items, but it's not a substitute. It's not complete in that in that way. Yeah. What would... If I... I have... Um, what would someone do if they had a large collection of notes? Is there anything to do with those if they're not organized in a network fashion and they're just over a long period of time organized? Yeah, imp import them into, well, one, give, you know, give every one of those notes a title, then import them into a network-based tool. I mean, you, you like, th that will require, like, a heavy lift, right? It needs some work. Um, like, if you just have a bunch of notes by date, that's not very useful because it doesn't tell you anything other than the date that that was written on. Right, right. It's that's actually why I abandoned. Yeah, that's why I abandoned Notion because, like, I had you know thousands and thousands of like days of free writing in there. It was like all I had was the date, and I could never you know like find anything if I wanted to use it again. And the idea that we'll go back to it and review it in some way—that's an illusory con concept. It's not. It's not. Yeah, you've, you've made work. Yeah, that's a great point. I used Evernote before that, and it was similar in the way I did mm -hmm. it. And so it's, it's not what you use so much, except sometimes with new tools, but it's the, yeah. the way it's frameworked, right? Mm -hmm. What is a, um, a difficulty you have had with imp implementing AI uh, into your production? Is there any difficulties that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't always give me the thing that I want. Sometimes it gets, you know, like I can find myself going into a loop of, you know, just an endless loop of the same thing over and over again. Um, or I will try to, you know, I'll overcomplicate, uh, you know, problems when they could have been simply solved much in much simpler ways. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, like, I think it's just an experiment. Like, I don't expect everything to work perfectly. You know, that's the, the thing. I think that's one big thing is you need to be very experimental about this. One thing also on the compounding, does that mean that if you would want to, as time goes on, you could put out a book every two months and every month or put out? Uh, yeah, I mean, the quality of them would suffer. Yes, you could put up put out a book every two months. I'm not going to, but um, 
you know, like I would rather, you know, do much more in-depth research. But yes, I could put out a book every two months. I don't want to. But the ability is, that's cool. It's nice because, yeah, over time now it suddenly turns into like. Yeah. The, you have it set up for that. Mm-hmm. Um, other than Cal Newport and Tiago Forte, are there any other people that you tend to direct individuals to or their thinking is? As far as all this goes, I mean, well, look, there's no one right answer to all this, right? So like Cal and and Tiago have definitely had a lot of influence on my thinking about all of this. Um, But there are also many others, like there's a woman named Annie Murphy Paul who wrote a book called The Extended Mind. Uh, You know, uh, the... yeah, and then what the hell is his name? Daniel Levitin, who wrote a book called The Organized Mind. Um, so really, again, you know, it takes us back to the beginning of this conversation where, you know, you want to use existing knowledge to build, you know, your own sort of frameworks. Like, that's the thing. It's like I've taken the things that I've learned from each person and built them into my own system. My last question for you will be, uh, what is the biggest difference in your material that you have put out from now to versus 10 years ago how's um how would it look different to the average individual in your view well again i mean hopefully like it's it's significantly better because you know if you look at early creations of anybody right even the most like prolific creators the most popular creators it's all sucks it's terrible like i i'm you know embarrassed by what I created early on and everybody should be embarrassed by what they created early on. I mean, you, when you go through the process of writing a book with a publisher, you learn how to revise, you learn how to edit, you learn how to clarify your thoughts. Like it's not just putting words down on paper anymore. This is a great point. Srinivas, you have provided a wide variety of value that I will actually be applying. Frankly, I can, I can now see multiple steps I will be taking. It's very valuable for any content creator or someone trying to put their knowledge together into a database. And yeah, I've been glad to speak with you about this topic and use of AI for creativity on this one. Cool. Wonderful. And we are out.